Dan Mack is back, and this year she has sought out the best customer-centric thought leaders from around the world. Are you after practical, accessible, and customer-centric marketing? You're in the right place. Sit back and enjoy Dan's small business podcast. For more information, go to www.daniellemckinnis.com or visit www.mckinnismarketing.com.au. So I'm delighted to have Bruce um, Kazoff as um, a guest today. He is a co-author of Smart Customers, Stupid Companies. So thank you, Bruce, for being part of this podcast. I really appreciate it. Sure, it's my pleasure, Dan. So when I went through your book, God, I was just so excited. Finally, somebody seemed to be um, as much as an IT geek as I am, but also have that customer centricity as part of the theme of this book. And one, mm-hmm. of, one of the things that I really resonated with me, and it might have even been in a slide set, but it was definitely in the book, was a referral to the Bain research, which said, and it's been much quoted, um, that, you know, 80% of businesses believe their customer satisfaction is great, but, you know, only 8% of, of customers agree. And, right. like, to me that sort of identified the real problem and that's sort of something that I've been thinking about a lot, you know, why is there such a big disconnect? And I just wondered whether this disconnect has something to do with all the tenants that you have in this book. Well... I think the disconnect is because for many, many reasons. I think it starts with the fact that that people, in executives and companies are highly motivated to make themselves look good. They get paid based on whether they were successful. They get promoted based on that. So they have very little incentive to say, you know, I have no idea how we're doing or we're doing horribly. So they, that's why things like customer satisfaction are um, prevalent, even though pretty much anyone will tell you that customer satisfaction is almost meaningless as a, as a metric. Uh, I think also that what happens, I mean, maybe the best way to illustrate this is for years, going back 15 years when I was part of Peppers and Rogers Group, uh, we had a framework called the race for the best customer. And it it basically had four stages, and it talked about, you know, the company's capability to serve customers. And every time I showed that, so typically I'd be in a room of 20, 30, 40 executives, and I'd ask, uh, there were, you know, four levels, you know, one to four, you could be higher or not so high, and, and four categories. And what always happened was that company, the executives, I'd say, place yourself, and they'd say, well, we're three on the border of three and four, or three there, we're almost four there. And then you'd say, or I'd say, so you're telling me that 100% of the time you're at this you know, border of four where you're almost always giving superb you know, customer service on this level. And then, oh, no, no, not 100% of the time. That is, you know, we do that sometimes. You know, well, what percentage do you do it? Well, we do it. 10 or 12 percent of the time so you know nine out of ten customers don't get that service well yeah i guess and and people would move back so they they end up being on the border of one and two they end up being beginners uh essentially and that's the reality 
And, and when you do a survey and you say, well, your customers, are you providing excellent customer service? Well, you know, in the car industry, they do excellent customer service based on telephone calls, that, at least in America, that the car dealer will say to you, make sure you say excellent when, mm-hmm. you know, when the survey people call up. Yeah. So it's just a rig system. Yeah. I agree. I just, I just had that as the underlying thing in my mind as I was reading this because as I went through I thought well now is the incentive to change like is that what you're trying to say well what we're trying to say is that if you I mean here, here's the the 22nd version right <laughs> over the past 20 years companies have uh, watched as Technology has changed dramatically. You know, smart wireless technology, everybody having cell phones and smartphones and instant access 24-7. And business models have not changed. They really have not changed significantly. And our point is that that's unsustainable, that you cannot have that degree of change in terms of how we interact with each other as a society and have your business approach not change. So what we were trying to do with smart customers, stupid companies, was to say to CEOs, to the CEOs, to the senior managers of of companies, is you will not be able to survive as a company at this level of profit, at this level of growth, if you don't react to these trends. And in some cases, we said, you'll die. You'll just be gone. You'll be gone in five or eight years. So what's been the response to that? Because I'd imagine that's pretty frightening for people in their cushy jobs doing their, you know, day in, day out. You know what I mean? I think understated is, you know, we didn't expect to change the world with it. And, you know, it's very interesting because what happens, so if you, if the typical, if I tell you the name of the book, so at a conference, when I meet new managers, when I meet you know vendors and executives and entrepreneurs, nearly everyone smiles. Ah, you know they get it that customers are getting smarter and companies haven't changed. Everybody gets it almost instantly, but almost everyone thinks of it in terms of other companies. Mm-hmm. Very yeah. few. I mean, I thought people would be insulted that they would say, "You're calling my company stupid." Almost nobody says you're referring to our company. The other companies are stupid. So I think that we we underestimated the degree to which people would, because we were worried. You used the word stupid in a book title that everyone would get upset. No one has gotten upset. By the same token, I think that people have, um, I mean, Michael Henshaw, who's my co-author, and I are in somewhat different businesses. I tend to work more with innovators and I hesitate to say smaller companies, more entrepreneurial. I, I work with, more with some vendors who are, cha- you know, um, enabling change. Mm-hmm. Than, and, and Michael tends to work more with bigger companies who are earlier in, in the stage of change. And so we have a constant debate over two years now over um, how far out there do we, do we go, how much do we push. And um, I think that we have chosen to be, how to say, somewhat polite. But uh, if you ask me a question, you know, straight on, I'll tell you whether your strategy is, I think at least, is viable. I'll tell you whether that's sustainable or not. 
Um, and let me just turn this off. Um, you know, so I think that we will see wrenching change and we will see most companies not anticipate it. So what you're saying to me is you could have gone harder in this Yeah, <laughs> we could have gone harder, yeah. I, well, should I be this honest? I'll be this honest. Um, <laughs> yeah, go for I, it. The, the book is the, when you have two people writing a book, you have you know, a mix of their ideas. I would have gone harder. I wouldn't have got my point across in quite the same way. Um, Michael would have, I'm not sure he would have gone softer, but he, 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 he was a mature adult presence that said, you know, everyone in the world is not an innovator. And, and there are a number of companies that just are never going to be the most aggressive. And so you know, you, if you want to be read by more than, you know, the ultra aggressive people, then, you know, let's, let's put this somewhere in the middle. So it, it is deliberately somewhere in the middle. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I do think that, um, you know, this like, if you, if you, it's very hot here. So I, I was in a hot tub the other day and I was thinking about the, if you put frogs in, in warm water and then you boil it, they never jump out of the water. And, and I think that, you know, <laughs> Hey, I was thinking, was that true of me? Am I going to die in this hot tub? But I didn't. But <laughs> I think that that is true of companies. I think that it is very, very hard. I'm, a, I'm actually, uh, as you know, I write for LinkedIn, and I'm, I'm trying to conceptualize an article. It may come out tomorrow. It may come out in two weeks, depending on whether I figure it out tonight or not, about change. Because human beings constantly underestimate change. We think the world is always going to be the way that, We've seen it or we see it today, and it's just not true. I mean, we, we're dealing here with last year that there, there came through New York. There was a Hurricane Sandy. It did a lot of damage. And, and before that, people thought we're invulnerable. The hurricanes don't hit New York City. They don't hit Connecticut. And that's just because they didn't for 25 years. But if you look at the 25 years before that, a lot of them did. Mm-hmm. And so I think that people think, well, big companies don't just suddenly start doing horribly, you know, and... Although even Apple, which is one of the best companies, their stock is down. I think it's forty percent this year. So, yeah, they yeah. they kind of do. So yeah. Well, can we go through and just discuss some of the um, the themes of the book around this dis- the disruptive forces that you explained? Because I thought that they were really really interesting, and I think that'll help people get a sense for what you see as. Um, yeah, as things that are creating this change. So one of right. the first ones was social influence. Um, can you tell us a bit about that? Sure. So social influence is the impact of social media. And the way that we describe it simply is if you imagine your company and your, your salesperson, let's say, or a customer service person trying to deal with the customer, and you're in a room and there's a hundred people in the room with the two of you, the customer and you. And every time you try and talk to the customer, the people who are in the room say, no, 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 that's stupid. That's a bad idea. Don't listen to him. That's a bad idea. That's the, the product's too expensive. Don't do it. That's social <laughs> influence. It's that yes. you'll never again be alone with your customer. You're always going to have from now on other people, other forces, other organizations who are saying, 
your price is too high, the quality is too low, we had a bad experience, we had a good experience, there's somebody over here who's better, these guys are more innovative, that's social influence. And and it, it, it raises just a whole host of strategic questions uh, that go beyond what companies are doing today, which is, you know, I, I, I'm, I'm just, um, I probably shouldn't mention the name, but there's a leading customer experience slash CRM expert who I'm reading the transcript of his, his forthcoming book um, literally just before we got on. And, and he was talking about the, my, you know, the, 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 their CRM and then it generally was per- perceived as failing and then customer experience is now the, the, the phrase of choice and uh, what happened. And, you know, and companies like to, they like to be able to buy something. You know, we'll buy better relationships with our customers. Mm-hmm. We'll, first we'll install CRM. Now it's maybe social media tools or social CRM or something like that. But it gets down usually to, well, we're going to monitor Twitter and Facebook for mentions, and then we're going to be able to react. Or, but these things are superficial. Mm-hmm. They, they don't get down to the core issue, which is, is that it's harder and harder for you to get away with just doing business the old way, which is, you know, okay, we just want to sell something to you. You know, just give us money and we'll ship you something and we can keep the money. And, and you know, it, it, all of these technologies require, well, on the one hand, they create opportunities to really reinvent what you do, to invent new, new revenue streams. Yeah. But they also force you to say, we're really not doing a good enough job mm-hmm. and we have to do something about that. Yeah, I mean, the real evidence to me was um, when my mother-in-law, who's 75, would then go and, you know, she hasn't got... She's got an Apple um, iMac, but she doesn't have a phone or an iPad, but she would still go and um, look up reviews before she went anywhere instead of using choice, you know. So I think when it's actually that prolific you can certainly say that the change has occurred (laughs) you know we're not going back so i thought that that was really interesting so uh, yeah and i think the other thing that i really liked about the book was that you know we can outwit a salesperson because if you're going to buy a car information um, before you even get there. So I think, yeah, I, I, I think that the pendulum sort of changed in terms of, you know, how much information we've got and when we enter the, the conversation with, you know, the salespeople. And I think that they're struggling a little bit with that as well. So, yeah, I was just saying that, I, yeah, I think that the pendulum sort of shifted in terms of, you know, when you go and buy a car now, you you know, you can look up the little black book, you know what the worth of it is. You're more informed often than the salesperson. Um, right, and exactly. So, and so that, I guess, yeah, for me is the example of how this social influence has changed, whether it's through peers or whatever, I just have access to the information. So I'm in a different position. So, yeah. Right, yeah, that, 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 that's the smart in smart customers. That, that you now have so much more information. And, uh, you know, the, the old days of going into a car dealership and you were at a disadvantage are gone. Yeah. 
it, it, you have the advantage that you can sit there on your smartphone and say it's cheaper if I just go, you know, 10 kilometers down the road. <laughs> exactly. So let's talk about this pervasive memory. Can you tell us a bit about that one? Yeah, pervasive memory, you know, every digital device that we interact through. So these computers that we're talking now, smartphone, if you pay for, uh, uh, you know, on the highway, you pay for a toll or fee, you know, because your car goes through and there's a digital device that logs it. Every single one of those, if you go through security in an office, they have memory. You know, it, all that data goes into a database. Even if a company doesn't use it, the data is going into a database, which means that memory is everywhere. We are surrounded by memory, things that never, ever, not only got recorded, but that no one knew. No one knew how long you took for lunch and whether the amount of time you take for lunch is longer or shorter than, you know, your thousand colleagues. Today, if you work in a big company, you work in an office, people could figure that out. Mm -hmm. And they know to whom you've spoken. And they know where, you know, in California, they put a lot of traffic um, cameras at traffic lights at intersections. And the number one complaint about them is that people are getting caught with, you know, having an affair. They, they, They go through red light, takes a picture, and it's a picture of you with not your wife or not your husband. You know, and where are you going? And your wife or husband sees that. Mm. You know, that's pervasive memory. Mm. And and that just dramatically, dramatically changes the rules of society. You know, and again, you can't, as a company, ignore that, you know, forever because it, it, it fundamentally raises issues, not just to privacy, but it raises issues of if I can know more about my customer, well, then can I do something different for that customer? Can I, you know, have a, a, a higher level of service? So, you know, again, it gets down to permission and doing something for the customer instead of just tracking the customer to try and sell him or her something. Mm. And when I was reading about this, I was thinking about this big term, you know, big data. You've probably heard it. And uh-huh. I'm, th- I'm thinking, well, yes, I think people can... Um, cotton on to this idea that there's more access to information. But the biggest disconnect for me is how how they use it or whether they're actually going to be able to integrate it um, and use it, you know, whether it's in the customer journey or for right. you know, satisfaction. I think that that's the biggest thing because, it, like you said, they can put a CRM, but unless it's based on you know, that empathy or understanding for what that customer is going through and feeling and 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 sort of preempting that, it sort of is not really doing the job that it could do. Right. Ever since uh, I worked with Don Peppers and Martha Rogers, so in the mid-90s, uh, all of us have been saying the same thing, which is, Remember information from customers, not about customers. It, 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 that is such a powerful um, way to, to, to think about what you do and what you don't do. Mm. If you're just tracking customers, for example, now they're starting to have you know, cameras and sensors that can go into retail stores and can track the movements of, of people. Mm. So the same sort of tracking they have online can be in a store. Mm. And a lot of people, myself included, find that creepy. Mm-hmm. 
if it benefited the individual customer and the individual customer gave it permission, like, you know, it's the think about the parallel to people. If you have a salesperson in a store who's not helpful, who's just following you around like they think you're going to steal something. Yeah. Well, that's really annoying, and most people would leave the store. Yeah. If you have somebody who's there, if you need them, and, and if you ask them a question, they're present. You know, do you think this tie goes for this jacket? Yeah, I do. And do you need a shirt? You know, that's helpful. And so you have to be able to use your know, data to benefit the customer. So can I remember what you buy so that you can reorder it easily? Can I remember your, your everybody remembers credit cards now, you know, if, it's, if you want me to, because I can make it easier. It's Amazon OneClick, all these mm. instant ordering things, which definitely, if it's a vendor that you like and in whom you have faith, then it's a benefit. Mm. I think I, I I read a good example of that where a bank could use their data to, for example, if they knew that you had three accounts but you were overdrawn in one, to make the simple recommendation that they move the money for you so you didn't incur the fee. Right. And I thought that was fantastic because it just shows that the the intent's in the right place to look after me. That's such right. a big point of difference because obviously if the intent's for them, they, they get the profit. But what a big differentiation. Right, and you think about the opposite. Think about if you have, you know, $7,000 in the bank and they bounce your check for $50 because in your checking account you have nothing. And, I mean, personally, I'd be furious. Mm. Like, I have the money in the bank. Why didn't you bounce my check? So, exactly. you know, as long as you have an agreement, if, you know, yes, you can take money out of this account if I don't have enough in that. All of these things done properly are benefits to the right customer. Some people say, no, don't ever do that, in which case, don't that's ever okay. do that. Yeah, that's okay. Okay, so what we talked a little bit about digital sensors, you, you said, in stores. Can you give us some more details around that? Sure. Uh, so digital sensors, and we use the term more broadly than most, they are, uh, I would go from cameras and audio equipment to literally sensors from, we talked about the tolls that, you know, the automated, you know, you don't have to stop and pay, um, to now there's literally uh, sensors in cities that, that can measure, they look for um, terrorism or hazardous, you know, is there too much pollution? Is there too much noise? Um, and and companies are using them as well. I mean, going back a number of years in the United States, there's a restaurant chain called Red Lobster and they sell, you know, seafood basically. And they had trouble with um, prices. You know, they like to do these, you know, $10 lunch specials and things and all the shrimp you can eat. And and they couldn't manage the price variations. And so what they did was they put sensors in the Gulf of Mexico to measure variations in the water temperature. And then based on that data, they were able to buy um, you know, financial like hedging products to lock in, make sure that they could do a $10 lunch and still make money off of it because they were able to get some information about okay, the price of shrimp is going to go up because it's warm water or it's going to go down because it's cool water. I'm not sure which is correct. But, you know, basically sensors give a company the ability to know what's happening 
not only in their world, but also in the customer's world. You know, one of the um, most interesting, most exciting, and potentially most scary uh, technologies out there right now is, um, I don't know, they call it, I hope they call it the same thing, where you are at Microsoft Xbox 360. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, so they have sensors. And my, uh, yes. my youngest uh, son has it. And, you know, it has sensors in it, which knows who's in the room. Yeah. It can tell the difference if my son or I leave the room, which one left the room. It can identify the players by looking at them. You can talk to it. And right now it's, it's presented as a gaming system. Typically you're in your family room or, you know, den or something. But that same technology, there's no reason why it can't be throughout a house or throughout an office. And... And sensors on that level, that is, I know where you are in the house. Mm. I know what you're doing. That's what's coming at us. And, you know, on the one hand, you can think about that from a consumer. And it doesn't have to be a consumer, by the way. The same thing can happen in a business. Think from that perspective, but also think about what kinds of services would a customer want in that world. Yeah. Now that's that's a that's like science fiction. That's a different world than what companies have been operating, you know, on the what rules, what's possible. And this is not, you know, speculative technology. It's out there. It's it's showed millions of units. Mm-hmm. By the way, the interesting thing about Xbox uh, is that most of the innovation has not come from Microsoft. It's come from people, individuals hacking the system. And that's a really interesting question because I wonder, um, we'll go to the last one, which is web, but I wonder how much of this is going to come from customers themselves. There's a, there's a tool called Waze or an app called Waze. Um, right. It's W-A-Z-E. Are you familiar uh-huh. with it? Where you can... That's the, the, the map and the gas stations? Yeah, and you can download it as an app and it's community-led so you can find right. out you know, what's coming ahead just by really, it's really crowdsourcing for right. it's pe- direction. It's people reporting to each other what's happening. You know, you can get cheaper gas if you keep going 10 miles, 10 kilometers down the road and, you know, there's a traffic accident. It is crowdsourced information. Yeah, and I just wonder how much of this is going to wait for the corporations to adopt it and get on board and how much of it's going to be, you know, giving this fantastic opportunity to entrepreneurs who? Okay, well, I can actually answer that question. Great. And it's the second one. It, you know, disruptive innovation almost always comes from the edges of an industry. The leaders of an industry have very little motivation to reinvent the industry. Why would you? You're, you're number one. Mm. What possible reason would you have to, to shake everything up? Unless you're in such a high, sometimes the the technology people have to do that because they know the mm. a product life cycle on a laptop or on a modem or is you know nine months. So yes. it's it, it, they have to do that, but most others don't. So you want to look at the edges of an industry to see where the opportunity is and who's coming. Uh, you know, in education, for example, in healthcare, it's the edges of the industry. It's not the established players who are leading change because there are all sorts of laws and there's all sorts of insurance issues and there's all sorts of just 
this is the way it's worked for 30 years. Yeah. So let's talk about the last um, disruptive focus, which is the web. And I really liked how that was explained in the book as being sort of all-encompassing in terms of the way that we live. Right. So what, what we call it is the physical web. Yeah. And we, we basically mean a world in which every person, everything, every idea, every event are linked. So think about, you know, on the web on your computer today, you click on links without even thinking about it now. That's just the way it is. And the world will be like that. The trees in your yard will be linked. Your cars will be linked. Many of them are already. Um, the, yeah, the fact that there's a, a social gathering tonight will be linked to an object, will be linked to certain people. A lot of this is already true, but some of it is non... It is it, just starting to appear. And I, I, One of my favorite examples is the idea of bubble sensing, which is that you can draw a, a virtual bubble around a place. So let's say you go to uh, London and you... Uh, you like uh, Kensington Park and you like a particular bench and you like sitting there watching the sunset, you can put a bubble around that bench and leave a note for somebody that says, essentially, if you're here at sunset, would you take a picture for me? <laughs> and the picture, when they take it, automatically goes to your smartphone from theirs. Now, that's only slightly theoretical in the sense that People have experimented with that and have done it. It's not commercially available. It was first conceptualized by people at uh, Dartmouth, the, the university up in, um, I would say, New Hampshire, New Hampshire um, near us. But it, it has been done. And it's, there's nothing, you know, my son, when he's in school during the year, on his Apple phone, he has a uh, alert when he steps onto our driveway, he gets a reminder that says, do your homework, which he created himself because he likes to get his homework done and then he can go watch soccer. Um, but you can send yourself messages. Other people can send your messages based on you just passed a certain intersection. That's the physical web. Yeah, it's just persuasive, isn't it? It's just it's coming at us, Bruce. <laughs> and, you know, if you're, a tech, yeah. if you're a technology geek, and I guess where I intersect is... Um, you know, I love being the voice of the customer in the meetings that I am in. I love having that empathy mm -hmm. and challenging what we're doing, but I'm passionate about technology. And so it's such an exciting time for me because I right. think there's an opportunity for us to use this to build better experiences because our customers oh, want sure. it. It's just the opportunity is there. I think a lot of people are... Um, are sort of taking the watch and see approach and not sort of embracing it. That's the sense that I That's get. Right. Um, so it's really interesting. I just wondered when you were doing this book whether you came across one particular example of a company that had embraced it and was doing doing that well. Well, I, I think in, in every industry you see examples of people doing this. In education you see a lot of the – there in the United States there's a lot of um, – test prep companies, people who are doing independent 
uh, ways to prepare yourself, whether for a standardized uh, university test or to get better in high school. Mm -hmm. There's the massive online courses now that, you know, a quarter of a million people are learning how to program or learning physics for free from, you know, a Stanford University professor. You know, that's that's a completely... Um, it's a wonderful example of these tech changing the rules so much that, that the people in the industry, people in colleges, just don't have any idea what's going to happen. So they're experimenting with these innovations. They really feel like they have no choice. In healthcare, there's a lot of companies who are doing what, what we call remote monitoring. So, you know, I can uh, have a, if I have diabetes or if I have high blood pressure, I can have a, a, a essentially a wireless device that takes readings from me, and anything that's an anomaly can go to my physician. You know, so every single industry has examples of this. What What is not as prevalent is, you know, if you looked up, um, you're just an average, one of the top 500 or 1,000 companies in the world, and said, how innovative are these people being? Then you have a harder time mm -hmm. saying, oh, they're leading the charge. They're not leading the charge, but... They're just never going to. Mm. So what's next for you? What are you working on? Well, what we're trying to do is we're trying to, uh, in the early stages, we really haven't talked about this a lot publicly, but we're, uh, we're going to introduce a way or maybe even a movement for um, customer experience to become an entrepreneurial activity. That is, that we think the customer experience, when I say we, Michael Hinshaw and I, um, think the customer experience has been just too much the province of people who are, um, they're catering to the status quo. They're making money by selling to companies that aren't really changing that much. We're trying to uh, make it easier for companies to get entrepreneurial programs going within their company that aren't all top-down, that are much more, you know, if, if you want to do something and you work in your company in anything close to marketing, customer service, product development, operations, engineering, that you can do something. And and that's that's the next big thing that we're going to do. Oh, the other thing, by the way, there's one more. Uh, as I talk, I realized, wow, we're, we're doing a few things. Um, with Adam Grant, who's a Wharton professor, who's also a LinkedIn influencer, we're starting to introduce, we're actually doing a beta test, I wrote about it on LinkedIn last week, to um, Adam's whole thing is the idea of givers versus takers, you know, people whose mindset is, um, I want to do something for somebody else, that's a giver, versus I'm out for myself. Yeah. And then in the middle, there's a whole bunch of us who are matchers, which, you know, you try and do something nice for people, but you don't want to do too much unless, you know, it's fair. And... We're actually introducing assessments that companies can use to assess their current employees and identify the givers because our whole theory is, is that one reason why so many CRM and customer experience initiatives haven't worked is because fundamentally they have been designed and managed by, sorry, takers. Mm. You know, people who are, we're trying to extract value out of customers. We're trying to make more money. We're trying to grow our profits as opposed to we're trying to to, to do a better job, to give more to other people, to be of greater service. So we're actually going to push companies to um, to try and identify givers and try and empower them. 
Fantastic. Well, I want in. <laughs> There's such valuable <laughs> tools and insight and it's exactly what we need to enable, you know, that change to happen. I think that's what you're trying to do, which is which is uh-huh. just which is just awesome. Is there any thought leaders or things that you're reading at the moment? Because it sounds like you're on top of the curve. Well, uh, like I said, I'm reading um, this book by, I, I just don't know if he's announced, so I don't want to say his name, but um, uh, it's a book on um, basically the future of customer experience by someone who is at the center of it. And yep. um, you know, <laughs> email me tomorrow. I'll ask him permission to say right. what it was. But um, That's okay. But it's very good. I can tell you that. Oh, great. And are you looking to do any more writing? Yes, uh, actually, uh, well, I mean, I write two to three times a week for LinkedIn, and I am, um, I'm definitely writing another book on my own, and um, we'll see how it goes. I'm I'm trying to hopefully be in the last stages of selling it, and then we'll uh, go ahead and write it. Oh, great. Well, you have to let us know, because I'd love to, um, love to get my hands on that again, and, and it's Absolutely. just been a delight to chat with you, and it's um, it's a really great book. I'm, I'll put some links to that and to um, the website on my um, podcast and on my blog, and I really appreciate your time. Oh, that'd be great. Thanks so much, Dan. I appreciate your interest. It was a, a pleasure talking to you. Hey, thanks for taking the time out of your busy day to listen to this podcast. For more great marketing tips, go to Dan's blog at www.daniellemcginnis.com and sign up for her marketing tips or visit her website at www.mcginnismarketing.com.au. Catch you next time.